I'm now joined by Ophelia Snyder, co-founder and president of 21 Shares, who back in 2018, they launched the world's first crypto ETF on the Six Swiss Exchange. Now, if you fast forward to today, they currently offer nearly 40 crypto ETPs across Europe. They're the largest provider of crypto ETPs in the world. They also recently launched their first products in the U.S. These are uh, private funds owning a basket of crypto assets. And then, yes, they do have a live spot Bitcoin ETF filing in the U.S. as well. It's in partnership with ARK Invest, uh, which certainly catches your attention. Ophelia is now on the line with me from uh, Zurich, Switzerland. Ophelia, pleasure to connect. Thank you for joining me. Um, no, thank you so much for having me. Okay, so look, a lot I want to cover, including that spot Bitcoin ETF filing. But let's start with some background for people unfamiliar with 21 shares. So I just gave a few data points on your lineup. Uh, give us a little more detail on the types of products you offer and where exactly these are traded. So 21 shares is the world's largest issuer of cryptocurrency ETPs. We launched the first ETP in the world in Zurich in 2018, um, and we've grown our product suite quite significantly since over 39 products, covering everything from single assets to indexes to shorts to yield-generating products. Um, we list and trade these products across on 11 exchanges across seven countries, um, started in Switzerland, but obviously expanding to France, Germany, Austria, Sweden, the Netherlands. We launched the first products uh, in the crypto space in Australia, and we're also running um, to private placements in the U.S. I know some of our listeners may be familiar with the Amun brand, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. What's the distinction between 21 shares and Amun? So the, the ethos of this company has always been bridging traditional finance with crypto and finding ways to make it easier for people to participate in this ecosystem and enter the space. Uh, and we do that in a bunch of different ways. Um, a, a big part of that is our research, which we committed a long time ago to being free um, and provided to everyone to help with education. We obviously have our exchange-traded product, and Amun is our token provider making that's focused on making the DeFi world more accessible. And tell me a little bit about your background. So I believe that I saw you used to make marine biology documentaries for the uh, Discovery Channel. You have to tell us about that. And then I I'm curious, how did you ultimately end up in crypto? So it was a bit of a winding road, actually. I, I never really planned to start a company. Um, but around 2013, 2014, um, I had wrapped up my time uh, making documentaries because I honestly really loved numbers and really loved finance. I was working at a venture capital fund. And my mom, of all people, came to talk to me one day, and she was like, you know, there's this really cool thing called Bitcoin. Have you looked at it? And I'm like, okay. Um, and she went on and on and on about how this was essential for the world and going to be so helpful in a world of increasing geopolitical uncertainty and increasing um, globalization of commerce, that a single unified currency made so much sense, and hedging costs for companies like the likes of Merck are crazy, and it makes it would be so much better if we could all just agree and get monetary policy away from politics. And my mom completely got the whole point of crypto. 
um, got the the difficulties of the financial infrastructure, got the geopolitical risk, got the monetary policy, absolutely the whole thing, but there wasn't really a good way for her to get into the space. And so that's how I actually started following the space. Um, I was I was still at Stanford at the time, and a couple of my other classmates were starting to talk about this thing called Bitcoin and crypto and blockchain and what was this going to look like. Um, I then I went on and became an investment banker, and I got my MBA, and I got a lot deeper into finance and a lot deeper into like how things are structured in the financial world and what I like to call financial plumbing, like how money moves through systems is fascinating to me. And so I was doing all of these things. I'd been following the crypto space for a long time, and my co-founder... Um, and I had pizza one day and got to talking. And both of our moms had had very similar issues in terms of accessing the space and really being able to participate, even though they completely understood all of the complicated bits of crypto, the actual access point was really difficult for them. And so that's really the impetus for building the company. Um, it's not a straightforward line, and it was quite a winding path. And I, I really never intended to build a company. I just wanted to solve a very quite frankly, personal problem. I love um, that backstory. That's fantastic. In the 21 shares name, that, that came from the 21 million cap on the supply of Bitcoin, correct? Yeah, exactly. I love it. Okay, so let's talk spot Bitcoin ETF. And as I mentioned, you do have a live filing with the SEC for the ARC 21 shares Bitcoin ETF. And I know you can't speak to that uh, d directly, but obviously you have been following this entire Bitcoin ETF uh, saga over the years. And... You know, I look here more recently. So just over the past couple of months, the SEC rejected spot filings from Grayscale and Bitwise. Uh, Grayscale is now suing the SEC. Uh, I saw that Bitwise has indicated they may end up doing the same. Just high level, what's your take on everything here? I mean, do you understand the SEC's positioning that they first want to see some sort of regulatory framework in place for the underlying crypto exchanges? Uh, or does that give you heartburn? Just what are your thoughts on this entire situation? So no new asset class can really thrive without clarity in regulation. That's a, a reality. It, it's very difficult to do business in crypto. It's very difficult to do business in anything unless you know what the rules are and what you're supposed to do. That uncertainty element isn't actually good for the industry or good for building companies at a fundamental level, um, regardless of whatever the specifics of that regulation are. It's not helpful. Um, and so over time, right, the regulatory environment is always evolving, not just in terms of how regulation is actually drafted, but also in like what essentially are the implementation notes around how that those regulations are interpreted in a contemporary environment for whatever new financial infrastructure comes out, whatever new energy infrastructure comes out, we're constantly reinterpreting regulation. And it's such a critical part of making it possible to build robust businesses. And there are really three main objectives of regulation, especially when it comes to securities markets fundamentally. It's protecting investors, providing monetary market stability, and preventing money laundering. And I think as an industry, we're quite pro having clarity on all of those things. And if you look at countries that have been very clear up front, that's how we ended up in Switzerland. Switzerland decided a very long time ago that they were going to create a framework and they were going to roll with it and we were going to try it. 
And the reality is the implementation and the interpretation of that framework has evolved as the industry has evolved, but that's completely normal. It's exactly what we're going to end up seeing with Mika in Europe. Those types of more comprehensive regulatory frameworks are actually really a net positive. It's one of the reasons why you see like such a flourishing crypto ecosystem in Switzerland. People understand what they're supposed to do and they do it. And I, my hope is for the United States that we end up in a very similar situation where there is clarity on what people are supposed to do, clarity in how to do this that really does meet ultimately what well-intentioned regulators around the world want. But just to clarify on that, I mean, do you think that the SEC, they're going to have to provide that regulatory clarity? There's going to have to be that regulatory framework in place before they allow a spot Bitcoin ETF to market? Do you think that framework has to come first? I think it's hard to say. I think the U.S., in terms of developing these types of frameworks, is quite a bit behind other developed economies. Why is that? Switzerland's had one for years. Europe's most of the way through Mika. Um, Australia has started to have one. You're seeing regulatory frameworks in Japan. You're seeing the U.S. has been a little bit more reluctant here. Um, To some degree, it makes sense. And if you look at the history of ETFs, for example, typically the European regulators do move first. Um, and that's not an uncommon thing. But I think we're reaching an inflection point where we, we do need that clarity from the U.S. Yeah. Um, and whether that comes from the SEC or the CFTC and, and how they choose to break that apart and which piece they choose to tackle first, at least from my perspective, isn't the critical piece. What you, we actually need is a meaningful, harmonized set of regulations. This is what it is. This is how to deal with it. Here's the period in which to become compliant. Here's how you do that. It's interesting. That's you know, all really the industry is looking for. Yeah. And I've asked this question of some other guests, but I don't, I'm not sure any of them have been as well positioned as you are to, to answer this. But, you know, it is interesting just looking at European regulators and how much more open they have been to spot products than the SEC. And I, you touched on it earlier. I mean, do you think it just comes down to that's kind of what's ingrained in the culture? They tend to be a little more forward-thinking, more open to innovation than the SEC? Does it boil down to to something that simple? So, I mean, this is a a bit of an... I'm a bit of a history nerd, so I I look at all of this through generally a historical lens. And if you think about the way in which regulations, both in the U.S. and Europe, have evolved over time, they're quite different. So, for example, Switzerland is very much based on um, common-sense practice and precedent in the way they actually implement regulations. So they write things that are very broad, and then they essentially attach implementation notes to them. And that's actually how most of Europe works, too, if you look at things like MIFID. The way they do them is they write these big, overarching things, and then there are typically, like, practice notes from the regulators around, okay, like, this is how we're interpreting this. And those are reassessed more frequently than the regulations themselves. And it's a very different way of doing things versus in the and a very different legacy in terms of what infrastructure already exists, right? So Europe has had harmonized ETF-specific regulation for a while. The U.S. still doesn't have consistent ETF regulation, right? We're still relying on exemptive relief in a, in a number of different cases, and that's a very different way of structuring a market. It's not necessarily better or worse. It's just fundamentally different, and it causes there to be a different set of issues around these types of discussions. What I will say is regardless of where or how securities regulation has evolved in any given jurisdiction, we've typically seen regulators follow a very similar, very consistent path regardless of the jurisdiction, right? 
the types of questions they ask, the types of areas they're trying to get smart on, the types of things that matter to them are actually quite consistent. Um, you know, you're looking at market microstructure. You're looking at how do you think of how do you handle central clearing with a high volatility product? You're looking at market oversight. How do you think about market oversight? What is the market of significant size? Is this of significant size? How do you explain this to retail? All of those questions are very consistent as you work through this. And I think different regulators are at different points on that learning curve. And we work with regulators all over the world to help them develop this knowledge in-house and have those tools. And in the same way, we do that for everyone from retail investors in Europe to family offices to hedge funds to pension plans. We also do that with regulators. And it's a huge part of our ethos is providing this free, accessible research that's designed to help people get comfortable with the space. Ophelia, moving away from the regulatory side of the equation. So listeners of this podcast know that I've long been a proponent of a spot Bitcoin ETF. And I feel like over the years, uh, more people have come around on this. And I think more people understand the potential value prop of, of this product. But even today, it's funny. I mean, I still get beat up on Twitter by people saying a spot ETF is the, <laughs> the dumbest thing imaginable, that the whole point of crypto is to own the assets direct, not wrap them in a uh, traditional fund wrapper, which references laws from 1940. So I'll, I'll just ask you, why do we need crypto ETPs versus just buying crypto direct? So there are bunch of reasons for that. Um, and I, you can go back to the origin story of my company. Why did my mom not buy crypto? Well, it all came down to infrastructure, right? Like at the end of the day, she doesn't want to set up a separate account. She doesn't want another bank account. And I completely understand and respect that that's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to actively manage their money. Not everybody is that engaged with that part of their life. This is a way of making this work within the traditional rail. Um, and fundamentally, that is still today how most people manage their financial lives. Aside from the convenience factor, um, crypto markets are still really early, right? They're still in their infancy, and you can deal with quite a range of issues when investing directly from, from custody to security, loss of private keys, loss of trusted information, uh, opening of external wallets, having to self-host. Do you trust third parties, these counterparties? Who are they? How do you think about that diligence? Um, our products, and I, I generally believe spot products in general, are really about making crypto more accessible in a way that structurally is quite vanilla. So it's physically replicated, it's segregated, it's deposited in an offline wallet, so it's cold storage. You can use your existing infrastructure to do it. Somebody else is making sure that, you know, the security practices are best in class. Um, all your, you don't need to actually dedicate resources to management, custody, all of these issues. There's a lot of simplicity, especially, and this is more relevant to Europe, but there's also quite a few benefits in terms of tax and clarity around tax treatment of the structures, as well as clarity, quite frankly, of like the fact that this is compatible with fund mandates, which physical crypto often is not. Um, the example I use, you know, quite frequently is, it's sort of like asking a commodities trader where their brain silo is. Do they really need one? Is that actually relevant? Is that where they're adding value? Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, and I think it's quite similar to how people think about gold, right? A gold bar and a vault versus trading in gold ETF. There are very practical reasons why that's a better structure. And that doesn't even take into account the fact that, for example, our product suite has a 
bunch of things that are not single asset products, right? So now you're talking about how do you deal with indexing? How do you deal with more sophisticated strategies? How do you deal with yield? How do you deal with staking? There's there are pieces of this infrastructure that can become significantly more complex. And so a lot of those benefits grow as the product suite grows. I think all of that is extremely well said. I mean, one thing that I'll add here is that just because crypto ETPs exist, that doesn't mean people can't still buy crypto direct. I don't know why that gets lost. And I've always described crypto ETPs as really being a bridge between crypto and traditional financial services. And by having that bridge, you're going to get more people interested. You're going to get more people learning about crypto and the entire ecosystem here. I think those are all positives. If you can allow people to interact with crypto in ways that they're familiar, in ways that they're comfortable about, that'll start pushing them down the, the learning curve. Uh, so, no, I, I think what you said was spot on. Uh, Ophelia, we, we only have a couple minutes left. I, I wish we had a full hour, but I, I would like to briefly get your views on the crypto market overall. You mentioned crypto is still early, and I don't think anybody would, would question that. But you, you look this year, it's been pretty tough, right? I mean, Bitcoin is down over 50%. Ether's down over 50%. Pick your crypto. Most are down substantially. What, what are you seeing in terms of investor interest in your products? And, and just what's your high-level take on overall market sentiment right now? Because I feel like I've seen a lot of victory lapping from crypto naysayers, right? They're you know jumping around saying, see, I told you it was all a scam and those sorts of things. What, what, what are you seeing here? So... One, we're still seeing inflows of our products pretty consistently across the range. And we haven't seen any major outflows. And that's because we work with our clients, quite frankly. Most of our clients are very thesis-driven and long-term holders. And we typically build products for long-term holders, so much so that our first product is literally called HODL. Um, more broadly, talking about the market, people forget that this is absolutely not crypto's first bear market. It's not even my company's first bear market. We launched literally at the peak of the last bull and went through a halving of our AUM after like slaving away to get a $5 million seed um, for our first product. And this is actually the best time in crypto. And it, it causes a bunch of different things to happen. One is the tourist fleet. So in terms of actually building interesting things and real innovation in the sector, this is when that happens. This is when all of the major breakthroughs happen. This is how NFTs were made. This is how DeFi was made. This is how Bitcoin was made. It comes out of these types of market conditions that force people to actually focus and build things that are, are, are of high value. And so from my perspective, this is an actually extraordinary time in the sector. If you actually look at what's happening at a fundamental level. So I think the naysayers doing their victory lap, that's great, but realistically what's being what's happening today in most high quality crypto companies is the seeds of the next major leaps forward for crypto are happening and will likely point back to this time period in 12 or 18 months as being the birth of something new and extraordinary in the sector that launches this forward in a meaningful way and hopefully helps us bring the next billion people into crypto. Well, Ophelia, with that, we're going to have to leave it there. Again, really enjoyed connecting. We'll certainly have to do this again. I, I love what you're building at 21 shares. Hope a, a U.S. spot Bitcoin ETF is somewhere in the future as well. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. This was really fun. That was Ophelia Snyder, co-founder and president of 21 shares.